Hello there. Welcome to Factor Fiction. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm here today with another Fiblet episode. Fiblets are where I read you four intriguing news stories from the past. Well, three of them are from the past. One is my own creation. And it's your job to determine if the stories are fact or fiction. So, are we ready to play? Welcome back. Today's episode has some crazy stories about some unique individuals. You're going to hear about a psychic who tries to solve a murder. You'll learn about a murder that happened at a house of ill repute. And oh, there's a story about criminally indecent cyclists that I kind of hope everyone will enjoy. And then there's also an older criminal who just can't seem to stay out of jail. Before I read each story, I will include its citation information. After I read the four articles, I'll pause to share an advertisement from the era to give you a little time to make your guess and maybe give you a little chuckle too. Then I'll come clean. Alrighty, let the games begin. Choice number one. Expects the spirits to solve a murder mystery. In the Wayne County Journal, November 13th, 1919. Page 7. Chicago. I shall solve the mystery of the murder of Mrs. Louise C. Brown within 30 days. This statement was made by Mrs. Elizabeth Thompson, a spiritualist and childhood friend of the widow, whose murder in the bungalow at Maywood remains unsolved after weeks of fruitless investigation. In order that she may have first-hand impressions, Mrs. Thompson and her family will move into the bungalow. The family consists of Mrs. Thompson, her husband, C.H. Thompson, and their daughter, Mrs. Holmes. Within a week after they have moved in, the Thompsons will hold a seance in the bungalow. The chief of police of Maywood, the police who have been working on the case, the coroner's physicians, and the reporters who have covered the case will be invited to attend. I do not promise to catch the murderer, said Mrs. Thompson. But I am positive that before I have lived 30 days in this house, I shall see in every detail exactly how the crime was committed, and I shall have an excellent description of the murderer and possibly the name. The Thompsons have been in London. They arrived in Chicago recently, and last Monday, Mrs. Thompson heard of the murder of Mrs. Brown. And when she recognized in the slain woman a former schoolmate, she determined to make the effort to solve the mystery by exercise of her spiritualistic faculties. In England, it is quite common to ask spiritualists to help in murder cases, Mrs. Thompson said. In many cases, they have solved the mystery, and in innumerable instances, they have been instrumental in giving valuable aid to the police. Choice number two, Cat House Calamity, Wayne County Journal, November 15th, 1906, page 2. On May 22nd at 2 o'clock this morning, George Pounds was heartlessly slain by Andrew Patchett. The murder occurred at a disreputable house in an area of the city frequently referred to as Hell's Nook. Patchett's first shot went astray, but the second shot took effect in Pounds' face. Witnesses to the crime told police that the dispute involved 
Big Bertha, an inmate of the house kept by Mother Hudson. This house, one of three such establishments in the Hell's Nook area, is a known body house frequented by murderers and thieves. Pounds was a traveling salesman for the Singer Sewing Machine Corporation. The general sentiment in town is that Patchett shot him in cold blood because Pounds was attempting to take the girl away from Mother Hudson's ranch. Patchett worked as a bartender at the establishment. The girl, Bertha Strong, is a coarse, uncouth blonde of about 17 summers who appears unconcerned over Georgia's sad fate and the role she played in it. Her direct testimony regarding the events is as follows. George Pounds wanted to meet me outside of the house. At first, I refused, but he kept asking, and he was swank, so I gave in. I sent him ahead and promised to follow as soon as Mother Hudson left me alone. When she did, I went out the back way to meet George. We had only made it to the edge of the wooded patch behind the house when we heard rustling in the brush. George thought it was a dog, but then Patchett appeared and fired his gun right at George. George fell to the ground, covered in blood. Patchett told me to get back to the house or I'd be shot next. I didn't try to help George for fear of Patchett. There may be more to the story. Patchett told the police that he shot Pounds at the urging of the girl. Here is his statement. After Pounds left the ranch, Big Bertha ran to me crying and begging me to chase down the chump who'd just left. I asked why, and she said he'd been a brute. I came upon him in the brush behind 7th Street, and he called Bertha all manner of names, so I shot him twice. She ran off back to the house a-screaming and a-carrying on. It is the opinion of this paper that incidents like these could be avoided if the good citizens of this city would work together to rid our municipality of all such evil establishments. Choice number three, Must Ride in Trousers, from the Chicago Chronicle, July 21st, 1895, page one. Upward of a thousand cheerful people gathered in Humboldt Park yesterday afternoon to enjoy the beauties of nature and see the Morgan and Wright Bicycle Club's races. About 75 wheelmen were there, ready to outdo each other in a merry sport or fall off their wheels in trying. At a word, the wheelmen threw off their outer garments, which they wore over their racing costumes, when up came the captain of the park police, supported by five satellites. He drew up his horse before the crowd of wheelmen, demanded attention, and then delivered himself of a message which sounded something like this. By order of the Honorable, the President of the Board of Park Commissioners, I command you to put on more clothes. When the astonished wheelmen came out of the haze into which the order had thrown them, they inquired particularly into the nature and meaning of the edict. As a supplement, the captain advised the racing men that the board's high notions of morals would not permit men in bare legs and bare arms to disgrace Palmer Square with their presence. In vain, some of the more fearless writers attempted to explain that even though their limbs were bare from above the ankle bone to a point below the kneecap, the limbs would be moving so rapidly during the race that no one could tell whether they were covered or not. The captain hesitated, shook his head, and answered, What about the bare arms? This poser set the bicycle men to thinking, and they were forced to admit that if the race was permitted to go on, there would be a great array of arms bare to the shoulder joint. It won't do, quoth the captain. My orders are imperative. If ye race on this course, you must clothe your lower limbs and a good share of your arms. 
there is but little about the racer suit to shock the most delicate modesty. The legs to the knees are covered with light muslin. The calves are bare, and every wheelman is proud of his brawny muscles. The arms are bare to the shoulders to give the reader freedom and action. With his sinews encased in a tight-fitting garment, the wheelman would never be able to sprint. Choice number four. Almost half a century in prison, going in again. From the Wayne County Journal, the 13th of November, 1919, page 7. Wheaton, Illinois. This community is interested in the fact that old Harry Myers, also known as Muldoon and King, has served almost half a century behind prison bars and is again headed for the penitentiary. The old man is 83, pleaded guilty before United States Commissioner Mason to the charge of defrauding the government by means of a raised money order. According to his own admission, Myers has been a crook more than 65 years. His hair and mustache are white and his frame slightly bent, but he shows no physical trace of the many years he has passed in confinement. Myers is not his right name, but that is the name he took when he started in on his career of crime at the age of 17. His most notable exploit was the robbery near this place of an old couple named Fairbanks by torture and putting lighted candles to their feet to make them divulge the hiding place of their enemy. This robbery, which stirred the entire country, was committed in 1880. The Fairbanks lived near Wheaton. It became known to Myers and two pals that the aged couple had a large amount of money secreted in their home. The house was isolated. One night, after Fairbanks and his wife had retired, they were awakened by Myers and his pals. Demands were made upon them for their money, but they insisted they kept no valuables in the house. After a search that revealed nothing, the robbers tied Fairbanks and his wife with ropes and then put lighted candles to their feet. Unable to stand the terrible treatment, the couple told the robbers where their hoard was hidden. It consisted of currency and negotiable bonds to the amount of $13,000 and represented their life savings. Well, folks, those are your choices. I'll pause to read an advertisement from the 1898 Chicago Tribune advertising some of Munyon's cures. Mr. Collins testifies for Munyon. Mr. C.L. Collins, a well-known railroad man on the C, M, and S, T, P, R, R, residing at 1504 Fulton Street, Chicago, Illinois, says... I suffered from over four months with sciatic rheumatism in my right hip and limb. I had tried numerous remedies that promised a sure cure, but any relief obtained was only temporary. My case became so serious that I was not able to sit down and every movement caused intense pain. It was then I applied to Munion for relief, and after the first treatment, I noticed improvement. In one month, I was entirely cured. Mr. Stafford also cured. C. Stafford, number 142, Colorado Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, says, I suffered untold agony with rheumatism and lumbago for six weeks. I believe I was never without pain. I tried several remedies, and failing to obtain any relief, I was induced to consult Munyon's specialist. My case was carefully diagnosed, and Munyon's rheumatism cure was prescribed. One small vial completely cured me in four days. I have also used Munyon's kidney cure in my family, and the results were no less marvelous. This is what Munyon's remedies do. 
Headache relieved in 7 to 10 minutes. Colds checked in a few hours. Coughs quickly relieved and cured. Rheumatism relieved at once and cured in a few days. Sore throat cured in 3 hours. Chills and fever broken at once. Kidney and stomach trouble, insomnia, nervous diseases, liver complaint, piles, neuralgia, catarrh, bronchitis, throat troubles, all female complaints, and diseases of children relieved at once and promptly cured. At all druggists, 25 cents a vial. Open day and evening, Sunday, 1 to 4. At the Atwood Building, Clark and Madison Streets. Sadly, I don't think we can find a vial of Munyon's rheumatism, kidney cure, or any of his other miraculous cures at our local druggist. Ah, the good old days. Well, enough reminiscing about medical cures from 1898. If you're still listening, I'm sure you're excited to learn which of the stories I made up. Was it choice number one, expects the spirits to solve a murder mystery? Choice number two, cat house calamity? Choice number three, must ride in trousers? Or choice number four, almost half a century in prison going in again? Jerome roll, please. The answer is... Choice number two, cat house calamity. Now, I did base that on an article about a shooting that occurred at a brothel when a bartender followed a man out and shot him in cold blood. And um, and then also that story did include uh, some editorialized comments on the nature of such establishments and why they needed to be removed. But I made up all the characters in it. Thanks for playing and tune in next week for another full-length episode of Fact or Fiction. And until then, listen carefully because it's difficult to know if something is fact or fiction. Goodbye.